Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Stocks for beginners. Nuclear power plants, for example. They have this sort of problem. You can never turn one off even when there's no demand for their electricity. So we have a few sort of locations where Bitcoin mining is being co-located and, and co-owned by a nuclear power plant. So when they have excess power that would otherwise go to waste, it's used for mining. But at a time where there's other demand for that power, the mining gets turned off. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Is money a mass delusion? What role does trust play in our financial systems? And is there a way of doing it better? Hello, Omid. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Omid Malikan is a nine-year veteran of the crypto industry where he spends most of his time as a consultant, educator, and I forgot to write explainer-in-chief, which was another nice way of putting it, an advocate for this new way of building trust. He's an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School where he lectures on blockchain and crypto, and he's the author of Re-Architecting Trust. Um, I've been enjoying reading your book, and it talks about the history of trust. Can you describe your brief sketch at the beginning of the book on how trust came about? Sure. The simple allegorical explanation is that at some point, two people realized that if they were to actually trust each other, they would both be better off in terms of both productivity, quality of life, survivability. And that experience then amplified into small communities villages, large societies, and today actually into everything from a financial system to even a social media platform. And also the legal system as well is a big part of it. Indeed, yeah. So the fascinating thing about trust is that human beings have been innovating on all the different ways that they can achieve it. So the social contract is one example. A legal system is another example Many of our existing institutions are hierarchical, whether it's how court systems work in many countries, how corporations are structured, even for those who are experts into how the financial markets work. And one of the reasons they're hierarchical is that a hierarchy is actually a pretty good way to preserve trust, meaning if you and I have to operate under the power of the same boss or a judge, maybe, then we're just going to be more likely to trust each other. So this uh, brings us to the ultimate test of trust, which is money. Tell us about money. What is it? Money is a myth or a mass delusion that human beings invented, interestingly enough, independently all over the world, in order to better trust each other. And a very simple way of understanding of that is to just imagine a world where there wasn't money. And how would people agree on commerce? How would you collect the wage and then turn around and use the value that you earned by working to purchase goods and services? Without money, there are just an infinite amount of frictions in all of our day-to-day interactions. But with money, then all of that becomes simplified. 
And that trust reverberates through the whole financial system, doesn't it? I mean, we're not just talking about money for exchanging goods, but um, the whole edifice of the financial system and banking and stock markets and all sorts of tradable ideas and goods all come from this build-up of trust upon trust. Indeed. Yeah, you could argue that other than money itself, the financial system is actually the most trust-based industry out there. And for proof, just consider the architecture of a bank or uh, a stock exchange, right? The large Greek columns, the marble, the physicality of it. It's just to, meant to imbue this sense of, I'm here, I'm stable, you can trust me. Even the names of a lot of financial institutions, actually, you know, they either have the word in English, there are many companies that have the word trust in them or some derivation of it. Or prudential, that's another big one, isn't it, in banks? That's right. And and also, I believe Prudential actually wasn't their logo or their motto, The Rock. And it was the Rock of Gibraltar, Black Stone, Black Rock, this combination of things that have a weight to them and you expect to be permanent and always present and not ephemeral. It all goes back to this idea of trust. And another part of your book, like when you move further into the book, you talk about trust being cyclical through history, that there's times of great trust and then times of not so great trust. Please explain that. Yeah, this is this idea that I call the curse of history, that the more established a trust framework becomes, any trust framework, the greater the incentive for someone to try to take advantage of it. And this is something that I think everybody knows just from our personal experience, that if you have a group of friends where you're always paying for each other's lunch and dinner and you're like, ah, it's okay, I trust that the others will make up for it. That opens the door for somebody to take advantage. More destructive is actually when a very trusted financial institution, for example, starts to take shortcuts. And because everybody trusts them, they're not looking. Or even with money, that a trusted currency becomes diluted because the people who use it take it for granted that it doesn't always have to be valuable. And this is the concept of the free rider that comes through as well, that there's going to be people who will take advantage of the trust system and um, not respond reciprocally. Indeed, yeah. I think and we've all been in situations, whether it's with our family or our work, that if other people sense that you're always going to pick up the slack and take care of what needs to be done, then they're going to do as little as they can get away with. That's okay in that context, but... The free rider problem actually becomes a major problem for any trust framework when you're talking about scale. So whether it is an entire financial system, a currency that millions of people rely on, even something like a technology solution or platform where we all become dependent on it, could be social media or something like that, which then opens all sorts of doors for the operator of it to start taking advantage of our trust. How do you measure trust? It depends on the context, and uh, oftentimes it's difficult. There are some interesting ways to try to put numbers on it. For example, with any currency, the simplest measure of trust is the current rate of inflation. So not surprisingly, you look in countries where trust is extremely low, like a Venezuela, for example, and you see that they have hyperinflation. People have no trust in the currency or the government that issues it. Historically, when you looked at governments like 
in the US or in Australia, at least for recent decades, there's been a lot of trust in the money and therefore very low inflation. We're starting to see that change. So it'll be interesting to see whether policymakers can sort of rein it in. Alternatively, I think one way you measure trust is if you look at the profits of the service providers who provide trust. So a very simple example is for things like event ticketing. If you want to buy a ticket to go to a sporting event or a concert on a secondary market, you can go buy it from a scalper on the street, but then you have very little means of trusting them. They might be selling you a counterfeit. So many people rely on companies who are officially licensed to resell or enable their platforms that enable the resell of tickets. And a lot of times if you add up what buyers and sellers, the fees they're paying to that middleman, it's 20, 30%. So to me, 20, 30% is actually the price of the cost of trust in the ticket market. (laughs) The price of trust. I love that. (laughs) You contend that we're going through a period where trust is breaking down and that blockchain is part of the solution to rebuilding trust. Why do you think that? How have you come to that conclusion? One from just years of observation and study. I am not one of these crypto experts who will go out and say that blockchain will fix all of the world's problems and that it's perfect. It's none of those things. However, in having studied it, I did learn that there are certain elements to how this admittedly confusing solution is designed that just work better for the modern world. And by modern, I mean a world where many things are digital. Many of us have some kind of a connected device with us 24 hours a day. And part of the reason trust is fading in other aspects of the world is because their solutions that we're using were architected long before the birth of the internet. There are many things we all use, like banks and fintechs. They look digital. I have a mobile app. I go in there. I'm not doing things on paper. However, if you look at the design, it's actually the same exact design as when people still used to do banking over the telephone and with a mainframe or even like somebody writing numbers in a physical ledger. So to start with, there are elements of blockchain, like, for example, total transparency, For better or for worse, then it's not always a good thing. But if you go look at a solution like Bitcoin, you always know exactly what's happening in real time. That is not a feature of your local bank or credit card company. Other benefits are things like things that are automated or things that we all agree there's no discretion, right? Like there's a lot of financial activity where you don't need a human to weigh the pros and cons and make a judgment call. There's effectively a math formula. In traditional financial system, a lot of that kind of work is still performed by a fallible human. People make mistakes, people can be corrupted, so forth and so on. So with a lot of blockchain work, not only are things automated by code, but they're automated in a way that, funny counterintuitive term that we say is trustless. And when something is trustless, it actually means you don't have to trust anyone, but you trust the outcome. And so this digitally native architecture that offers transparency, trustlessness, distribution, so everything happens on many computers all over the world, operated by different people and companies. My thesis is that those are just better building blocks for a digital world. Sounds like enforced trust to me. (laughs) Yes. And actually, if you think about it, in many instances, that's what we want. 
if anyone goes to a casino and you're playing blackjack, you want enforced trust. You don't want the dealer to be able to say like, ah, you know what? I'm going to decide that 22 is the winning number, not 21. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So let's talk about the fundamentals of blockchain and crypto, and I believe you can do it in a fashion that's not intimidating to newcomers. <laughs> this is your ultimate test now. <laughs> okay. So if we separate the infrastructure, I think the simple part of this that many of your listeners are familiar with, there's the blockchain infrastructure, and then there is the output, like a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. It's very tempting to then say, well, why don't we have one without the other? And there are certain limited applications where actually banks and financial institutions are looking at using blockchains in a more restricted fashion for the things they already do. And that's fine. But what's really interesting about something like Bitcoin is actually that you can't separate the unit of value from the underlying infrastructure. Because ultimately, what solves the problem of trust in a world where nobody knows anybody, everyone's anonymous or pseudonymous in that community. Everyone's all over the world, different countries, different legal systems. And remarkably, like almost anyone can do anything they want. If you wanted to enter the Bitcoin domain, right, you could be what we call a miner, which is really you're just uh, verifying people's transactions. You could be what we call a node, which is you can just store a copy of the history of the network, the ledger, for your reasons, whatever they might be. You could be a user, you could be an exchange. And like somehow you have this crazy global open thing on the internet that is designed to handle billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars in value. The first thing you would think is like, wait a minute, there's no government in charge here. There's no corporation in charge here. Hackers and thieves and all sorts of shady characters are going to run wild. And yet they don't, not in the fundamental infrastructure sense. And the reason that's possible is the one clever thing that the original inventor of Bitcoin introduced to build trust was the use of financial incentives in a way where the most honest operator is the richest one. And it's this fantastic situation where there are actually many ways to attack the Bitcoin blockchain or network. Some of them could be very profitable. It just so happens that whoever has the resources to carry out such an attack would make even more money perpetuating the security of the network and making it operate better. So that core idea, which, mind you, back in 2008 and 9 when it was introduced, was a wild idea. Bitcoin comes out of this world of distributed systems, which is actually a 50-year-old field, if not longer, that goes back to the space program originally. And the simple question of how do we get different computers to talk to each other and agree on something? Originally, it was like they needed to agree on the speed of a rocket or the distance to the moon. And 
for this novel idea in Bitcoin that, well, let's open that up and let anybody participate. Let anyone's computer be a part of it. However, we'll use financial incentives to make sure that people do the right thing. It worked. So now a lot of the other applications that you're hearing about are innovators and entrepreneurs asking, what else can we apply this idea to that we can have this crazy mishmash of different technologies like cryptography and distributed systems, combine them with some kind of a incentive for people to behave honestly. And we're now seeing that approach being applied to everything from actually banking, financial services, different kinds of decentralized web solutions, digital art, even the enablement of better infrastructure for people to not pay with cryptocurrencies, but to actually pay with fiat currencies like the US dollar or the Australian dollar. You mentioned Bitcoin mining, and it's it's an interesting concept that um, you have to devote so many resources to mine Bitcoin that that is a way of enforcing the trust in the system. Yes, exactly. In fact, the simple way that mining works is that if you're a business and you're doing it, you have to spend a bunch of money up front in your local currency, which could be you know, dollars, euros, yen, etc. And then if you do a good job, you get paid in Bitcoin, not your local currency. So already your incentives are aligned that all us being equal, you want the price of this Bitcoin thing to go up. At least you don't want it to go down. You want to recoup your costs. And the best thing you can do to contribute to that cause is do an honest job. And it's interesting as well. I know many, well, I know a few parents who have suddenly got a huge electricity bill and gone, what the hell's going <laughs> on here? <laughs> yes. Um, the one downside of mining, and this is one of those areas where crypto is far from perfect, is that Bitcoin's approach specifically is very energy intensive. And in a world where one, we have an energy crisis globally, and two, everyone's increasingly aware of things like carbon emissions, that is a negative. The question everybody needs to now ponder, though, is that is it a net negative? By which I mean there are many human activities that in aggregate have a large carbon footprint. I think my favorites are people who play video games. And uh, you know, I'm here in the States where it's summertime right now. So air conditioning. The U.S. uses more electricity for air conditioning than the U.K. does in total. And that's like a social value judgment, right? Should we be doing that? And I think the same thing applies to Bitcoin mining, my belief is that the things that Bitcoin itself enables make that cost worth it, but intelligent people could disagree on that. And um, I believe that uh, some of this mining is done in places where there's ample power available, like Iceland, for example. There's geothermal power, and also the servers don't need to be kept quite as, um, quite as cold. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Mining is actually a very rare industrial activity that is very energy intensive, but you can do it anywhere on the planet, even in space, and you can turn it on and off anytime you want. So increasingly what we're seeing, for example, here in the U.S., is mining is being used as what's known as a grid stabilizer. So for example, nuclear power plants, for example, they have this sort of problem. You can never turn one off even when there's no demand for their electricity. So we have a few locations where Bitcoin mining is being co-located and, and co-owned by a nuclear power plant. So when they have excess power that would otherwise go to waste, it's used for mining. But at a time where there's other demand 
for that power, the mining gets turned off. And then when wind and solar might be taking up the slack at that stage? Yes, with renewables, exactly. There is this problem that the production is very volatile. Is it windy? Is it sunny? And in many places in the world, there is this problem where there is potentially excess production in a way that there isn't necessarily transmission for. So, for example, in the U.S., parts of New York State are like that, or Texas. It's very difficult to get, say, Tesla to come build a new power plant or an aluminum spelting to come to like the middle of nowhere in texas just because there's abundant and cheap power it's very easy to build bitcoin mining there another term we hear about is decentralized finance and this is another use case really for the blockchain isn't it and um, this decentralization does matter to preserve integrity yes decentralized finance or DeFi is a subset of the crypto industry that I'm actually, it's my favorite in part because I spent many years on Wall Street and I worked in financial services during the 2008 crisis. So I had a front row seat on many things that went wrong. So DeFi says, okay, we have these things that I explained earlier. We have this new infrastructure that's meant to build trust. Can we use it to go beyond just a simple currency and do things like allow borrowing and lending between people who don't know each other? Or trading, like the kind of activity you would participate at a stock exchange. And some of these applications have actually worked out. There are decentralized banks that are bigger than the vast majority of banks in the world. Like they, their assets might be $5, $10 billion. There are decentralized exchanges that volume-wise doing well. And in terms of the number of different markets, you know, your local like Stock exchange in any big city might have list 1,000 stocks or 2,000 or something. They're decentralized exchanges because it's all, like we said earlier, it's automated and code does these things that humans normally do. Some of these exchanges have 40,000 different products and securities that people trade. And my personal thesis is that ultimately the parts of the financial system where you don't need humans to make judgment calls will all be migrated into DeFi. This might take 20, 30 years. And not for some ideological reasons, but because there are things about DeFi that make the system safer and therefore more trustworthy. And I will give you a very simple example of that. If I'm using a decentralized bank, you know, the no number one concern every human has in any bank is always, what are they doing with my money? Are they being responsible? Are they taking too much risk with it, et cetera? In the traditional system, we have no choice but to rely on regulators to make sure banks are acting honestly. And then the regulators will have no choice to rely on the banks. It's very counterintuitive. A lot of trust in there. A lot of trust in there, exactly. You know, it's kind of like the regulators create rules, give them over to the bankers and say, please don't break these rules. And then they show up once in a while and be like, did you break those rules? <laughs> I need to look at your records to see if... You broke the rules I gave you. And we need a bailout now, by the way. Exactly. In DeFi, you can literally look at a bank's balance sheet down to the penny. And because the information is not being provided by a banker, it's being provided by the blockchain infrastructure, it's trustworthy. And now, whether it's you or your local regulator could actually make a better decision on the safety of a solution than they could with even the most reliable traditional bank. Do you believe then that um, some of the lessons of the global financial crisis and the near collapse of the banking system would have been obviated to a certain extent by the use of blockchain technology? 
Yeah, I actually remember during that period, the biggest problem everyone had was we didn't know where the bodies were buried. You know, we didn't know who had what toxic assets, who had loaned how much money to who. In some cases, it actually came out later that even the executives within some of these institutions didn't know what they had. And that's one problem in DeFi you will never have. In fact, in DeFi, you have the opposite problem. Everybody knows everything all the time. And so there are sort of uh, financial games that people can play where they can look and say, oh, if the price of this asset falls by another 5%, this margin loan is going to get liquidated. So I am going to sell as much of it as I can to force it to get liquidated. And that's bad for the person getting liquidated. But that level of transparency just leads to a safer, more reliable financial system. We're currently seeing the value of cryptocurrencies fall through the floor. Does this affect your thesis in any way? Not really. One, I'm thankfully not a trader or investment advisor. And um, you know, other than I do believe that like Bitcoin has some useful purpose, which means its coins have some value. The market will decide what that value is in the long run. The one thing that's also interesting about any kind of digital asset or crypto asset is that it's best to think of everything as sort of like a startup because many of these projects were literally launched six months ago, three years ago, etc. But they're unique in that, again, because the blockchain infrastructure is superior, they're like startups that have liquidity from day one and they have price discovery from day one, which you know, cuts both ways. But a lot of the volatility that we see is just because these things are new. If every new fintech or even restaurant had shares that traded from before they even opened their doors, you could imagine that they would be outlandishly volatile, right? The restaurant gets a license to open, the stock triples, but then they get a bad review in a local newspaper, the stock gets uh, fall and a half. So volatility is to be expected, which is also why if anybody's actually going to invest in cryptocurrencies, they should be very, very careful. In terms of the environmental impact, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, that um, other cryptos like Ethereum actually require less energy and less calculating power than Bitcoin. Indeed. Ethereum is like halfway to transitioning to that point. But the Energy consumption of Bitcoin, what we call proof of work, but it's just fancy language of saying how security is achieved in that world. And it's that model that miners have to sort of like waste money to prove that they have honest intent. Most of the other blockchain solutions and soon potentially in the next few months, Ethereum, they use a different security framework called proof of stake. The idea there is actually quite simple. It's like, well, if we want people to have skin in the game and prove their honest intent, Instead of having them waste money up front, why don't we just have them put the money sort of in escrow with the whole network? If they do a good job, we'll pay them a fee. If they do a bad job, they forfeit their escrow. The environmental impact there is the same as any other computer network, actually. So definitely a benefit. Proof of stake, the different blockchain solutions have been running it for years, and they've done fine. However, it's never been fully tested at scale. So we're going to see that test with Ethereum. And there is an argument to be made that proof of stake will be by definition, not as decentralized. And in Bitcoin, power is very diffuse because the miners have a little bit of power, but then the people who own a lot of coins also have some power and they offset each other. In proof of stake, whoever has the most coins has the most power. 
which then could lead to a dynamic where the rich get richer or enforce their will against those who don't have a lot of coins. These are the things that get debated. Like I said, it's all like new startups. It remains to be seen what the winning model is. It's great to have you to talk to about this because I hear things being in the financial space about um, crypto and you can confirm or deny them for me. But one thing that I have heard is that yeah, a lot of people think that there's nothing behind cryptocurrencies, but I have heard from other people that they do actually, these blockchain services do provide a rate of interest by renting out the technology to other enterprises. Is that correct? Not so much the technology. It's more like if you think about that they create a platform on which you can have units of trust and then other people can show up and say, well, I'm interested in trust because of what I want to do, but I don't care about Bitcoin or investing or money. Uh, And my favorite new example of that is this whole world of NFTs or non-fungible tokens with digital art, collectibles, and all sorts of other crazy things. So to quickly explain what an NFT is, all the early cryptos that your listeners would have heard of, like Bitcoin or Ether, even Dogecoin, those are fungible tokens. They're millions of units, and they're all interchangeable in the same way that a 10-pound note is like any other 10-pound note. NFTs were this idea that, well, what if I don't want fungibility? I don't want one of many. What if I want one of one? Right? Some kind of a digital container of value where the blockchain tracks where it came from and who owns it and what rights it might bestow the owner, but there's only one of it. And what that's done is enabled something that I think is actually very important, which is digital scarcity. You and I are old enough to remember back when, like, records and cds where how you consume music physical books even like a magazine you go to the stand or get it delivered to your door physical goods are by definition scarce which created a business model for all sorts of people in the creative world you want to make money selling music how did you do that you used to put it on a physical device and you sold the physical device and that was great then the internet showed up and napster showed up And I'm also old enough to have been in college when Napster came out. And I remember we all went wild downloading every song we could get our hands on because we thought it was great, right? Like no more walking around with my Discman or Walkman and a CD that can only hold 15 songs. I now have a computer with 10,000 songs on it. That destroyed the business model of the music industry and musicians. And some similar pattern played out in many other creative industries Because there was no digital scarcity. There was no way for somebody to sell, well, I'm only going to sell 10 or 100 or 1,000 limited edition of an image or a song or something. With blockchain, and it's sort of like trust as a service that it provides, people can now do that. It's early. We're seeing a lot of interesting experimentation. Like anything in crypto, a lot of the experimentation will probably end very badly for some people. However, I am confident that we are going to see all sorts of new interesting business models for writers, for musicians, for creators of all kind. And it's something to do with provenance as well. And I'll just give you the example of a friend of mine who's a rare book dealer. And I didn't realize that all of the whole rare book infrastructure is going onto the blockchain, for example. Oh, that's fascinating. And, you know, it makes sense because... Provenance is actually yet another derivative of trust. And uh, Rare Books is a great example. You want to make sure it is an original, not some knockoff. But really, like anyone who's done a real estate transaction, 
right? Like the most important thing in a real estate transaction is to verify that the person you're buying from is the rightful owner, which means you have to verify that they bought it legally from the previous owner and the previous owner. And that's where provenance comes from. And this is actually one of the fundamental trust building solutions of blockchain is you can track the origins of anything back to the beginning of time. That's true for a Bitcoin. Literally, if you own a Bitcoin, you can go back and look at all the way until the point it was created by a miner. But now people are saying, oh, well, what else can I use that provenance for, right? And it's being applied to everything from the supply chain of goods. Like if I'm buying a luxury handbag, is it authentic or a knockoff? The rare books example I had not heard, but as an author, I think that's a great one. Okay, before we go, during my research on you, when I was uh, digging deep into your work, I saw this video, and we'll put a link in the blog post to it, where you talked about the Federal Reserve, which is the US Central Bank. What are your observations on the Fed, as it's most commonly known? (laughs) Well, you, you did your research. Yeah, that YouTube video, I believe I posted it in 2010. It went viral, but it broke all the rules of virality because it was a seven-minute cartoon about monetary policy. But at the time, it was a critique of what was then considered a radical policy, which was quantitative easing, which is like a fancy technical way of saying the government printing money to prop up the financial system. The fascinating thing about it is that like quantitative easing has now become completely normal everywhere. In Japan, they're who invented it in some ways. They're at this very moment you know, going into turbocharge because they don't want their interest rates to go up. And people can go watch the cartoon themselves. There were many things I got wrong in that critique. But the overall skepticism of the downsides of that solution, especially when applied for a long time. It's one thing to say we're in the middle of a crisis. We're going to do this for a month and then we'll quickly roll it back. But What's always happened is they say a month, then it becomes a year, then it becomes permanent. And ultimately, it's a violation of trust because if we are all going to trust a currency, any currency, right, we need to trust the issuer of it to not be a free rider, not to say, oh, I can print a trillion dollars and use it to buy treasury bonds. And that will allow the uh, Congress to spend money on all sorts of questionably valuable things. And what we've seen I think with the inflation that we're experiencing now is people are starting to question these policies. I'm not sure if we're actually talking about the same video. I don't remember it being as an animation, but you were going through the points (laughs) about the Fed and about how it's constituted and that the people... Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's okay. We'll we'll put uh, links to both videos (laughs) there as well. But this is the one where you talk about um, the people who run the Federal Reserve having absolutely no qualifications whatsoever. Yeah, and this is actually, like I think, a fascinating thing with central banking in general, which is go back and look at the interventions that any central bank imposed in 2020 regardless of your opinion of whether they did the right thing or not, there was an inordinate amount of power exercised by a very small group of people who often have very similar backgrounds. And many of them either come from Wall Street or academia. Right? Like you don't get a lot of like former CEOs there. You don't get a lot of lawyers there or you know, tech entrepreneurs there or school teachers, etc. And they often have much more power financially than your elected representatives, assuming you live in a democracy. 
And I, I'm just fascinated by this idea that here in the U.S. we have all these, I'm sure you do too, like there are these generic annual bills like the farm bill or the highway bill. And it's like $10 billion needs to be spent. And there's so much debate and discussion in Congress and on TV and in the media and other places for $10 billion. And yet we've had examples with the Fed where they, the committee of less than 12 people got together and said, we're going to do this new thing and we're going to create $12 trillion to do it. Not 12, sorry, $2 trillion, but still a hell of a lot more than $10 billion. <laughs> Yeah, because you make the point that there is a difference between what happens in government and the amount of hurdles that need to be jumped over to implement any kind of legislation, as opposed to the Federal Reserve, which seems to just act almost without any oversight. Yes. And supposedly that design exists because you want the central bank to be politically neutral. And you don't want them to just become under pressure by the president or, or somebody in parliament. However, there is a flip side to that, which is that what if they're wrong? (laughs) When our elected leaders do a poor job, we go to the polls and we vote them out. And oftentimes in central banking, that mechanism doesn't really exist. And I think we are now going to reconsider how we do this because one, the inflation that's happening, but also like a lot of the policies that central bankers have been introducing for decades have failed to live up to their own predictions. And I think Japan is actually the perfect example of where the Bank of Japan has been predicting that deflation will end and inflation will start with for like 25 years. <laughs> they can't seem to get that economy going, can they? Yeah, which probably means that's not their problem. And ultimately, when I did the research for the book, an idea that I arrived at again and again throughout history is these are very difficult problems of like, how do you sustain economic growth and how do you issue a currency and manage a currency? And uh, the one thing that never makes sense, and this is something I even say to my friends who really believe in crypto. The one thing that never makes sense is arrogance. None of us know what the perfect answer is. We can take shots at the dark at a better answer. And I think crypto in some ways represents a better answer, but not as a total replacement of what we have today perhaps more as like a permanent sanity check. So in these days of inflation going through the roof, do you feel that um, cryptocurrencies have a place in being a store of value? I mean, there seems to be this uh, kind of discussion about whether it's going to replace gold as um, the store of value. Do you believe it's going to take that place? I guess you're going to think it's um, going to be maybe one day, but not right now. (laughs) Yes. And also a different kind of store of value. I think what makes Bitcoin in particular interesting is that The appeal of gold has always been that gold itself doesn't have a centralized issuer. There's no Federal Reserve that can do quantitative easing on gold. The downside of gold is that it's difficult to store and very difficult to transfer. So as a means of payment, particularly in a global digital world, it's awful. Bitcoin is interesting because it has these gold-like properties, but it has its own built-in decentralized and by extension apolitical payment system. Anybody on planet Earth can tap into it, acquire some coins, and send them to anybody else. And while usually that's critiqued as a flaw, right? Oh, criminals can use it. Russia could potentially use it to evade economic sanctions, etc. I actually think the world needs at least one kind of value transfer system that is apolitical, sort of like the Switzerland of money. Well, how Switzerland used to be. Omid Malakan, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. 
Omid's book is called Rearchitecting Trust. It's a great read and it'll help you understand a lot more about crypto and blockchain without all the hype. It's available on Amazon and everywhere books are sold. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.